Adrian. Yes. Josh, is this hey. you? This is me. Okay, hold on one second. I'm going to stop the kids from um, yelling and screaming. I'll be back in like 15 oh seconds. God. All right. Girls. Oh, that's the best. <laughs> Sophie. What? I can't find Sophie. Give me some space. Not come in. I don't want to be the BBC dad. <laughs> you know, hey. I saw one. There, there was a weatherman recently. His cat was just licking his anus for like thirty <laughs> seconds while he was giving the news, <laughs> or he was trying to read the. And like, you couldn't pay attention to a, a, a thing the, the poor guy was saying. Like, I have no idea what weather he was talking about. It was just a cat licking its butthole behind him. Oh my god! The entire my, time, my, I forgot to warn the cat. But if I warned the cat, I know the cat will deliberately find a way of sabotaging. This mission, that's his, that's his primary task is to sabotage whatever endeavor I'm doing in, 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 in life. Like uh, one time he erased an entire day's work um, that I was oh, working on. How is how's that possible? Like a deleted file okay, sort of thing? I, no, it's a Dell computer. You know those Dell laptops? Oh, yeah. Where they don't save it as you go along. And um, he just managed to erase it. And then the computer crashed. And then it had to go back to the previous saved point, which was like a day earlier. So oh, <laughs> he managed to destroy man. it. And, you know, and the funny thing is, you know, I, I don't know, maybe a th- maybe 800 words, right? So nothing, uh-huh. not, not, nothing major. I mean, there's a famous story of Thomas Carlyle sending his copy of the um, French Revolution, his history of the French Revolution. He sent it to John Stuart Mill to read. And John Stuart Mill's um, servant just saw this bunch of old papers and assumed it was firelighters and she burned the whole manuscript. Um, <laughs> and it was the only copy he had notes, but the only actual copy of the book was that one that he'd sent to mill and um, she completely destroyed it. And then John Stuart mill had to go around to um, Carlisle's house and explain what had happened. Um, so oh. that was no. So, so the thing is that the cat deleted 800 words and I know it was just a bunch of crap, but I sometimes think about it because I think, what if that was like the greatest 800 words that I'd ever uh, written? And it'll never be back. What, I'll, I'll uh, never know what it was, you know? Well, I mean, I guess on a long enough timeline, everything is ephemeral. It'll all be dust eventually. But oh, yeah, in the meantime, it, it's mind-numbing. I, I think about uh, the cost of that isn't the 800 words, really. It's the, the sort of... Uh, I, the, the unwillingness to let it go uh, and oh my god what could that have been yeah uh, there's there's something special about um, uh, the things that 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 we lose and although of course if those th- those same 800 words would have hit the cutting room floor for you oh. it, uh, on, oh. on their own you would have happily let go of them yeah I mean exactly um I mean one of the things that, that there's a quote by Isaac Bashava singer where he says, the writer's best friend is the waste paper basket. And I, I never really understood that in, in, in college or graduate school. But then when I actually became a writer, you become the toughest critic of your own work and you realize how important that is. So if you've got a book that you feel is a, is 100,000 words, but you know in your heart it's supposed to be 90 um, or 85, you just feel that's the length of the story, then comes the, the horror show of losing 10,000 words. And, uh, you know, if it has to go, it has to go. Uh, and, you, and you just have to do it. But you're right. Right. I mean, 
the, the, if everything's precious, nothing's precious, right? And, and I think as writers, we, we often, we treat something as, as so precious that, um, I don't know, we, we lose the sort of objectivity. You do, but um, the, the stuff that's lost, though, it has a special place in your heart. Like a lot of times I'll wake up in the middle of the night with an idea and, you know, I can't find the notebook or whatever. And so I'll put, I don't know, a water bottle upside down next to the dresser and I'll go, oh yeah when i remember when I, when I wake up to, i'll remember that i was supposed to do this and then i put it in my head I'll wake up in the next morning and go why is the water bottle upside down on the dresser right and then, and then i'll flip it the right way up and then later on that day i'll go oh shit i was supposed <laughs> to remember something that's why i did that what on earth could that have been and it's gone it's gone it's gone into the into the ether and people say, no, well, this was, I'll say this. She'll say, if it was a really good idea, it'll come back to you. But I don't think that's how ideas work. Uh, I, I don't think so either. I mean, I, I think it's a really nice thought to think like, you know, all the good things will stick. I don't need to keep notes of any of this. But I, I, that's relying a whole lot on on memory and, um, I don't know, mood, emotions, the, the yeah, feelings exactly. a particular thought has. I, I don't, I don't want to rely that much on it. I mean, no. I think of all the great books that I've I've read. Yeah, I remember a feeling, but very rarely do I. Yeah. I don't even always remember like the characters. Um, by the no. way, this is the first time you, you and I have spoken uh, uh, on a phone. Even though I guess this isn't technically technically a phone; it's a computer. Uh, it's all the same now. I was really expecting a, a, a thicker Northern Irish accent. Oh no, um, no, accent's completely messed up. I mean. Basically, I left Northern Ireland when I was about 17 to go to uni in England. So there was like 17 years of North Belfast. Um, and then I was in England for about six years at various colleges. And then I was over here basically for about, in America, for about 15 or 16 years. And then I was in Australia for 10 years. Um, right. Jerusalem for a year. And now back Oof. here for about three years. So my accent is completely wasted. However, I will say this, though. When I get back to Belfast, something really bizarre happens. Not the first day. Maybe not even the second day. But by the third day, my voice has dropped half an octave. And <laughs> I'm going around talking. I'm talking, I'm talking like this. Right there. How's it going? Are you okay? Yeah, come on, kids. <laughs> Let's go out. We'll go down to the park and get some sunshine in this wee break between the rain. My kids are looking at me just going, who are you? Like, <laughs> where's our dad gone? That's not the way you think. You don't talk like that. And just go, I'm sorry, kids. It's, it's just happened again. This is what happens three days after being home, you know. And it, it just, something clicks in your head and suddenly you're back into that mindset and that world and that way of, talking and maybe even that way of thinking as well i mean who knows um the i think that's been busted the is it the sapir wharf theory of um language um acquisition do you ever see the film arrival yeah yeah, yeah. well arrival is based on um i think it's a ted chang short story and it's based on i think it's called we can google this there's i think it's called the sapir wharf theory of of language acquisition and, and supposedly um, some languages don't have a future tense so that makes people think differently and some languages yes. don't have, you know all, that idea 
And the, and, the, and I suppose the premise of Arrival is that once you've learned this alien language, which exists in the past, the present, and the future, it allows you to see in the future. And it's a beautiful idea. Um, but the problem is that the Sapir-Whorf theory of, of language is completely false. It's abs- it's, it's be- it was a popular theory in the 50s and 60s, but it's been completely busted as a concept today. Oh, I didn't know that. No, I've no, been no. going around thinking like people in, in certain like yeah, Asian countries too. or maybe the Danes, they, they save more because they don't have the, the same tenses that we have. Exactly. Or, you know, or, or the, that idea of the I think honestly, I think it's the word. It's the Hopi. They have no future tense. So they live in this beautiful Zen like present. And it's all a load of bollocks. Um, none, of that, none of that is true. Every uh, like they've they've just proven completely that that none of that actually happens. So um, there's a there's a there's a guy at Columbia called John McWhorter, I think, and he's written a oh yeah I know him and he's written a fantastic book on it, um, deconstructing that whole idea. And and I used to have I used to I went through so much trauma watching that movie Arrival because I just I watched that movie after reading his book debunking oh. so I was watching the the movie with increasing fury and just going but wait this is I would have yelled at everyone in the cinema you guys don't realize yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they, you're like Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson just yes. tweeting like errors in, in the film yeah. stop the film for a second and so I, I remember my wife and I we went to it together and we both come out of it and she thought it was beautiful and wonderful and I had hated I'd been so angry and my fists were clenched literally clenched um, when we left it's nice that's so stupid languages don't work like that i just read this book about it anyway so for about a year afterwards i had hated it and then i got more into the music of johan johansson you know the the, the icelandic composer and he'd written the um the soundtrack for arrival and lots of other amazing soundtracks and so i listened to the soundtrack of arrival and I really fell in love with the soundtrack and I'd listened to it maybe a hundred times. I just thought it was a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. And so then I started, mm. maybe I'll give the movie another try. And I started watching the movie and then something in my brain went, Adrian, you don't have to hate this movie because this movie takes place in a universe where the Sapir Wharf theory is true. It's not our universe. And I went, oh my God. Yes. So now I can love the movie. And <laughs> once I'd done that simple mental trick, I really enjoyed the movie. And uh, it was delightful. Oh, man, that, that, that reframing. I feel like that could be useful. And just uh, it's almost like a, a stoical. It's a perverse stoical experiment. I, I, tr- um, I tricked myself into, uh, into seeing it a different way. You're right. I've reframed it. And then it was great. It was absolutely great. I really would love to dig into your story. I'd love to have you on the podcast and, and spend some time because you have such a, a fascinating story, especially the the recent events of the, the last five years. And I've, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, ever since I, I picked up a copy of Dead I Well May Be on a used bookshelf um, at Half Price Books in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, wow. And um, man, I, I don't it's one of the few times where I, I don't generally think blurbs do much of anything, but I remember reading the blurbs on this and I'm like, uh, I'll go ahead and crack it open. 
And and I gotta tell you, Adrian, the the thing that that you taught me was that you could do genre fiction in a in a beautiful prosaic way that it didn't have to be i mean your writing is very matter of fact but it's also it it, it, it it's not it's not flowery yeah. and it lacks the the sort of flowery bullshit that a lot of people try to inject in 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 bad writing um but man it there was something about that book that uh it stuck with me for for many years and it showed me that you could you could do both you you could write something that is both entertaining it didn't just have to be about you know, the interior life and serious uh, social commentary. And while those things can be fine, and I, I can certainly enjoy those things, uh, you can you can entertain, but you can do so in, in a beautiful way. And I, there was this just an aesthetic beauty to the writing. And I've I followed it since. And, I, and I, I'd love to, to spend some time really unpacking your story. But the thing I want to talk to you about today is, um, you know, growing up in Northern Ireland, you you uh, dealt with the, the sort of tail end of the troubles. Yeah, um, you've written quite a bit about the troubles in in your your novels. Um, how does this the current pandemic r- remind you of that at all? Oh my God, it's so interesting because Lee and I, my wife Leah, who's American, she's from um, Boston. We were just talking about this about two weeks ago, and um, she came to me and said, "Adrian, look, I'm having a real problem with your attitude." And I, oh. and I said, what's going on? And she said, well, me and the girls are really scared, really nervous. You seem to be in your element. And, <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? She says, it's almost as if you're um, uh, loving it in, 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 to some extent. And, and I go, Leah, that's not it at all. It's just that, you know, for 20, the first 20 years of my life, this is exactly what we are all going through. Um, you know, the, the, during the troubles, the, the, the power outages would happen. You'd have no power. You'd have no heat. The, you know, you wouldn't know where if the, the shops were going to have food or not. Sometimes the shops would be burned down. So you're always in a kind of a crisis mode. And it wasn't like the Blitz where it lasted for two or three years or, you know, this lasted basically for my entire childhood, that you were always right. in this mode. And it, it, it kind of became a default mode for me. So it wasn't as if I was enjoying it or relishing it. It just, I went back into that default mode. And in Belfast, that default mode was a kind of gallows humor, a kind of black humor, a kind of insouciance, um, just that kind of, of feeling about it. And, um, and so, and so like, I wasn't, nothing, the panic never happened to me and hasn't happened to me or the, uh, so I was sort of feeling it in a, in a, in a completely different way, going back to the seventies default position. And also I had done all this weird prepping my whole life. And just because, you know, you know, this isn't being hyperbolic, but just, you never knew, knew when you were going to get burned out of your house, um, you know, mm. in, in Belfast. So people would have suitcases packed. You know, they'd have suitcases packed and they'd have water and they'd have valuables and they'd have had food and everything. So I always had a, you know, a go bag or what does it call a dirt bag uh, where you just have all your stuff ready to go. And I remember when I came to um, New York for the first time in the 90s, um, I remember, I just remembered uh, way before the world. No, I think it was just after the World Trade Center bomb. Uh, the first one, you remember the one in the in the basement? 93. 93. Yeah. And I, I, I just arrived there that year. 
and I said to, and I was losing my girlfriend then, and I said, you know, how are we going to um, escape from New York if they shut down the bridges and tunnels? Like, what's our way out? And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, if they <laughs> shut down the bridges, then what are we going to? So I sat and spent about a week um, planning how we would escape. And uh, I figured out there was two ways to do it. And um, one from where we were, we could cycle up to the George Washington Bridge and they kept the pedestrian ways open. And the other way, if they actually closed down the George Washington Bridge, uh, was to paddle across the Harlem River, uh, which is only about 50 yards wide um, in an inflatable kayak. So uh, <laughs> okay. those were my two preparation plans. Now, of course, nothing ever happened. But here, the funny thing was in 9-11, they closed all the bridges and tunnels um, uh-huh. to people coming, trying to people leave Manhattan. They opened them all for emergency services to come in. So there was no way people could get out um, of Manhattan. So I remember saying to Leah, well, there you go. Um, we have a way of getting out. And we right. could get into our inflatable kayak and go across the Harlem River, which is only 50 yards wide. And the same thing, like we live, we moved to Denver and we moved to Israel and Australia. But when we moved back to New York two years ago, I had exactly the same thing in my mind. Well, what's our emergency plan? And we had a whole emergency plan. And before anything happened, this is like two and a half years ago. And, um, and then two weeks ago, when Donald Trump said, um, oh, we may have to quarantine. Do you remember that? He came on TV and says, we may have to quarantine New York. And mm-hmm. then I said to Lee, okay, that's it. Emergency plan. And we had all our stuff. I had a, I'd bought a tent. I'd bought sleeping bags for the girls. I literally, I had bought a, um, a gas stove with burners. Um, I've, I've had water for purification tablets, um, for about four years. I've had, you know, this, what is the, 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 Number 99 masks. I can't remember what type of masks they are. N95. I've had those for about four years uh, in my my grab bag. And so when they said they're going to quarantine New York, we just set off um, that morning. We got a rental car and we drove north. And fortunately for us, my my wife's mother has a summer cabin up in the mountains up here. And we just set off really early in the morning before anybody could close any roads. And we got up here and there was no food, no electricity, no heat, but we didn't need it because we had the stove and everything, everything else. Wow. And, and I, and it just really reminded me of, of Belfast in the seventies and the eighties when sometimes you'd lose par for four or five days or, or whatever, or, or, or whatever. So, uh, so that's just a very interesting, just a very interesting experience. I feel like I feel like both the you know, the troubles and then and this pandemic they they make you start to question what is essential, and you realize that the things that we once thought were essential probably aren't. And then, oh by the way, there are some things that are going to be essential for us, and and this is highly individual. But th- there are things that are essential for you that that I mean, you've been sounds like you've been asking these questions for for decades now, but that your average person wouldn't think of as essential. And instead, you know, it's the uh, whatever the physical equivalent of a, a security blanket is. People have all of these yeah. sort of security security blankets around their their lives that aren't aren't actually essential. And then quite quite often, they may even get in 
in the way. And so I, I think maybe these these times, whether it's the troubles or a pandemic, they, they make us start to question the uh, you know, what's truly important in our life. Yeah, it is true. I mean, I knew that when we were driving up here, um, I couldn't, I mean, I've, I've got a ton of books. And I thought to myself, well, I can't bring a ton of books in the car. And what is, what's the most important book that I can actually bring that will actually give me comfort and I can just read. If I was going to bring one book, and it was really interesting to have to do that distillation in your head. You know, mm. how can I distill this entire bookshelf down to one book? And I found it was actually remarkably easy. And the one book that I brought was this book of bird watching called The Peregrine um, by J.A. Baker. And it's a book I've marked up and reread dozens of times. And it has actually provided an incredible amount of comfort and um, and happiness because it's just so dense with with beauty and with the the, the joy of the outdoors and nature and birds and it was the, actually the perfect thing and it is a, a, a really interesting exercise in letting go and what's essential and what's not essential and um, and I found that one book was uh, has been enough. I mean, if this went on for a year and I had to read it like 50 times, I would I'd be going, no, I hate this bloody book. But so far, it is it has been great, you know? Uh, I mean, I, may, I could maybe do that with Infinite Jest, although in a year you might only get through it like one and a half times. Well, that's, but, uh, that's a really good one because it's, what, a thousand pages long? Uh, yeah, yeah, almost eleven hundred, and it's. Uh, I mean, it, it is very dense too. I think the, the typeface might be like size nine, and it's single spaced. It's, um, it, it's a dense book. It's also beautifully written. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Wallace fan. Um, Don DeLillo like was clearly a, a an influence on him, and um, often when that's the case, you you just get bad flowery writing. I, but this, the, I have a, that was not. I have a slightly um, amusing. Well, it's, it's actually not that amusing in retrospect. David Foster Wallace story. Um, so I had read his essay, Shipping Out, uh, for Harper's. And mm-hmm. um, that eventually got put into the collection. Um, uh, what was that? The supposedly fun totally thing I'll never do again. I'll never do again. As the title essay. Um, right. But originally it was Shipping Out in, in Harper's. And I had, was at that time, this is the 90s in New York, and I do, was doing a little bit of fact-checking for Harper's and a little bit of copy editing and stuff like that. And, and they had asked me very generously um, if I'd like to write an essay uh, for Harper. So I was so excited. And uh, so I was in the office and um, I can't remember who, it might, might, might have been Colin Harrison, it might, it might have been somebody else, but um, introduced me to uh, Dave Foster Wallace. And he's, you know, he's a big guy. He was a very, very yeah. big guy. And, um, that whoever introduced me to him, he was just on his way out and I was on my way in. So we're just like passing in the corridor. So the conversation was never going to be more than 20 or 30 seconds long. Um, but I, I remember whoever, in, whoever was introduced me said, Oh, Adrian has a very interesting accent. And, and obviously enabling him to guess where I was from. And then um, he said, um, he said, Oh, Adrian, where are you from? And for about nine or 10 seconds, I couldn't remember. <laughs> and I stood there starstruck, you know, looking up at him like a crazed stalker um, or something, something like that. And, uh, and he just sort of looked at me, just go, uh, I have to go. And then he left. And that was my one interaction with David Foster Wallace. I just made it 
unspeakably awkward for him, for me, for everyone. And uh, and so years later, you know, it's it's not one to tell the grandkids. So yeah, I, I met Dave Foster Wells. What did you guys do together? Yeah, I stood looking at him awkwardly for eight seconds. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. There, there's something. There's something very um, surreal about that. I mean, and there's a surrealist quality in some of his work. So I don't know. I feel like I feel like maybe a character at some point did uh, uh, stare awkwardly at another character for eight seconds. Maybe you were an inspiration. Yes, there. I hope it's not in his di- if his diaries are ever published. I met this total asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh well let me ask you this uh probably wrap up here with this um uh have you thought about this this sort of crisis or pandemic uh, um through the eyes of your fiction like how would how would some of your your characters look at this differently from you i mean uh whether it's uh uh, michael forsyth or or or, uh uh, sean duffy uh these are people who are are rather i don't stoical men yeah um how how would they see something like this they, they would they probably see the panic as being absurd yeah but I, I mean i i think i think that they wouldn't be on board with the panic but something like something like michael Forsyth, who's a real chancer might see it as an opportunity he might think well all those people that have abandoned their apartments to go live in the hamptons or whatever like who's watching those apartments and mm-hmm. you know, he might see this as an opportunity or all those empty streets uh, of new york at like two or three in the morning uh, I mean, you know, they, they, they might kind of get that vibe into it or something like Sean Duffy might get a, he might see it from an artistic pr- perspective because it's just the emptiness is so odd and beautiful and strange, you know, this weird, empty, abandoned city. I remember I first came to um, New York, um, I, I remember reading Lorca's poem, Poet New York, and for I, I saw New York through Lorca. Um, for um, a lot of my time there, just this surreal city, you know, sweltering in the summer heat. And I think it would be really interesting to see it just uh, as a newcomer arriving in New York and this it's fixed forever in your mind as this strange, empty, beautiful, austere place. Um, like there's a bit of, do you remember a taxi driver um, with a bit where he's got the mohawk and he's stalking the candidate? Uh, oh, yeah. and, and the candidate is speaking at Columbus Circle and Columbus Circle um, has got that statue and the candidate, Scorsese's framed it so the candidate has got his arms out and then there's the statue of the, of the character with his arms out behind him and you can never ever see that in New York because Columbus Circle is always so busy but I remember uh-huh. before we left, I went down to Columbus Circle and it was completely deserted and it's just weird walking through the canyons of New York City as if it's a film set. And, you know, it's got this odd, creepy, um, terrifying, aesthetic beauty um, to the whole place. So um, I think that. Yeah, there's something terrifying about it. My wife and I went up to uh, Palm Springs uh, on Easter. And I mean, I imagine Palm Springs is already going to be dead on an Easter, but Easter during a pandemic, the only people who were out were people who clearly appeared to be up to no good or, or were at least uh, on the verge of being up to no good. You know, they just needed some uh, a tiny bit of inspiration. Yes. Uh, it seemed like. And uh, I don't, there, there was something vaguely apocalyptic about it. And that's why the, the troubles always reminded me of a, uh, of a, a pseudo apocalypse in a way. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I've got this, um, 
I, I remember there was this line I wrote when I was doing one of the Sean Duffy novels is where I was going to like Belfast is all cities, like all cities in the future will look like this. And, you know, it kind of came true for a while. Uh, um, all cities were this deserted after the, I mean, Belfast used to have a curfew um, at nine o'clock at night and suddenly and all cities became like that. After nine o'clock, you couldn't go around. You, you know, it was it was a curfew and it was deserted. Um, but I also think to myself, you know, has this changed everything? I mean, will all fiction have to address this now? I mean, you know, in in episodic TV shows, are they going to start talking about the pandemic, or will they just carry on as normal? You know, like in soap operas and stuff, will there be the pandemic episodes and? Um, you know, like a show like uh, I'm trying to think of a contemporary show that's going like the say a show like Ozark. Ozark, yeah. <laughs> we have the pandemic season. You know, what exactly is going to happen? Or is Larry David going to do the whole pandemic arc? Um, um, and then I'm also it, dreading it away. 18 months from now, all the serious pandemic novels um, coming out. Or uh, yeah, that's not. Yeah, I, that's not going to be. It, it feels. It feels irresponsible not to address it, but it also feels. Uh, I mean, you, I think maybe the best way to handle it would be to sort of nod at it uh, because we are going to be in a different world. I mean, yeah. th- there there are things that I've written. In fact, I just the the first week of of quarantine, I, I just finished writing our next nonfiction book, um, and it, it it took the last two years of my life to to work on it mm-hmm. and. And, and, and that book in a weird way feels like it took place in a different time. Although thankfully it's, it's this book about relationships and minimalism in a weird way. It's a pandemic preparation book. Yeah. And I never, I never meant for it to be that, but, um, in a way it feels to me like there's, there's almost like a, there's going to be, you know, pre pandemic and post pandemic life. And there isn't going to be a back to normal be, going back presupposes that we, uh, uh, can turn around and, 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 time travel back to November, 2019, but there's going to be some new normal. I just don't know what that new normal is. I, I don't know if there's a equivalent of, of the, the so-called peace walls in, um, in, in our new world here, but, uh, I, I wonder what that might be. It's going to be so, so interesting. I, I just remember that my mindset it was, I remember three months ago, um, the biggest thing that was annoying me about the world, uh, or, or had really gotten under my skin was the Houston Astros and how they were going to get away with cheating in right. 2020. That was the thing. I spent so much of my time, like that, like one or two hours a day, I was thinking about the Astros and going, how dare they? You know, it's disgraceful. You know, uh, yes, I was getting so worked up about it. That seems like a thousand years ago. Like it seems <laughs> so irrelevant and stupid. And one of the things that this has certainly done, it's, made us reevaluate what I exactly is important and what's not important, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and that, that's gotta be a good thing. Um, when you, you, you're suddenly aware of, of what real priorities are and what, you know, what's really interesting in your life and what's really not interesting in your life. And, that, and get rid of all that, these distractions. You know, I think that sounds like the the perfect place to end this. Adrian, I could talk to you forever and I got to get you out here to LA on the actual podcast so we can, uh, we can have a, a long form conversation about all of this, but I really appreciate your time today. Hey, Thank you so much, much Josh. I'll talk to you again.